Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free for you, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, Episode 157, Part 2 on Richard Rorty's Achieving Our Country, Leftist Thought in 20th Century America. So last time we talked about having a left that is politically engaged as opposed to one that is merely critical and what that involves. And so I've stated my problematic with the argument that I feel like we need to address as we go through the specifics in here. But we haven't heard much from you, Seth. Why don't you tell us about your reaction to this book and what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I didn't read this book. I didn't read it like a uh, like a philosophy text where I took a lot of notes. I read it and it forced me into introspection and then simultaneously felt like an articulation of like, oh, that's why it, oh, okay, now I understand. That's why, yeah, that's it. And I still am horrified by the idea that my participation in the that other podcast is going to be broadcast to the public the one where we were ostensibly talking about the relationship between philosophy and politics, but I just was, it was a case study. It was an articulation of, of what he's talking about in this book and kind of a, just a, a performance piece on leftist indignation. And so it's embarrassing and shameful to read something that makes you realize that you are a caricature and, and a hypocrite even when Wes was very clearly calling that out in a very gentle way before and has been, has been for some time. So, I mean, I just, I feel like physically ill about all of this stuff and about my role in it. And I'm trying still to come to terms with it. And I, reading this was very therapeutic in a lot of respects, but that feels to me much more internal than something I can have a discussion about, I guess. I mean, this is philosophy in the mirror in front of Seth as opposed to philosophy in the mirror of nature right here. <laughs> How are you guys sane? How is this not affecting you? How are you not in a place where I am? That, I guess that's a question I would have. And by this, you mean the events of the past two or three months? Yeah. I mean, the sense that even though I'm obviously emotionally much less anchored than the rest of you, that politically and socially, I think we're aligned on many issues. How is it that you have maintained your independence from the bubble, the self-described bubble, and, and how have you resisted becoming part of this intellectually effete and disengaged? If you're not politically engaged, if you're not active, but how have you avoided getting sucked into this? Well, I guess I was just trying to criticize a little bit Rorty's emphasis on awe, and what I mean by that is more generally this idea that it seems like one of the byproducts of what he's arguing is that to really be a politically engaged citizen, you have to put what would have previously, in previous eras, been a religious impulse into the political moment. You have to get really excited mm -hmm. about it. And I feel like uh, I, I have a more complicated relationship 
to my, my own emotions and the thing, my projects and the things that I'm excited about, you know, so he emphasizes later in the book that, well, you can't analyze something and love it at the same time, at least not initially. Mm -hmm. And as you might know by my other podcast, I don't agree with that at all. Like those are entirely like analyzing something makes me love it all the more. It makes, it connects me to it. And in the same way, I feel like I can be, I see no problem in being snarky and having a certain ironic detachment and yet also being politically engaged. And I think, in fact, that's the dominant form right now, right? The Daily Show, the John Oliver, Stephen Colbert. That's exactly the kind of snarkiness that it sounds like should just be written off according to Rorty as pure negativity. But yet, like, there's an obvious immediately applicable, like, no, we're trying to raise outrage. We're trying to play on these, as Wes was saying, on people's consciences by playing on their sense of the absurd and how weird and wrong stuff is to at least get people, you know, voting the right way. I don't know how active anyway. I disagree. I honestly disagree that the purpose of all that stuff is to persuade people. They're making fun of the people that they would persuade. The thing that's missing out of all of those critics is that as acute as they are in both their criticism and in some cases in formulating what an alternative would be, none of them are doing anything, as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong, but none of them are part of any kind of actual political action to change legislation, to change the actual laws of our land. I don't think everyone has to be directly involved in that. I don't think that everyone has to be directly involved in it. Like something that like The Daily Show could be politically powerful if it were actually persuasive to anyone outside of a, a certain partisan self-definition. It's not a force of persuasion. It's just a, for, a way for, for certain partisans to congratulate themselves about their points of view. Well, I, I don't know about that. You know, when I would watch Jon Stewart, he managed often to combine making fun with a very acute particular analysis of what was wrong that was combined with what ought to be done, particularly his media criticism. I don't think it was as simple as making fun. Yeah, you're right. I think when I think back on that now, I think, uh, yeah, that's probably actually an example of one of the more persuasive uh, elements socially. So that's a bad example. Yeah, I I find it difficult to believe, you know, especially that something on the comedy network, like, so it's just, it's not aimed at, it's not the Fox News, it's not the liberal network. It's people that like comedy and they watch Trailer Park Boys and they watch South Park and whatever. Maybe the, the only people that end up liking it consistently are, end up being some kind of partisans. But I find it difficult to believe that nobody was ever convinced by anything any of those guys said. No, I think a whole generation of people kind of had their beliefs formed and solidified with that among many influences to make them into the partisans that they are to create the bubble. Yeah, I definitely think that it further perpetuates the bubble. It's an ironic entertainment or edutainment aspect of what Rorty would criticize in this, I think it's the second, the cultural left, which I think is the third essay. That's the third one. You know, where he, he says, as soon as somebody tells you that something needs to be theorized or thematized or whatever, you know, you should run for the hills, right? That it's, you're about to fall into postmodern academic speak. And there's, there's a path that he argues to, to get to the issue with postmodernism. But this is really 
what the Daily Show and those those sorts of things are is simply a perpetuation in that same vein, but in entertaining way. It definitely, I would say, is less theoretical and jargon-laden because of the, the nature of the medium that, that's being used to communicate the message, but it's unfailingly still trying to drive the same agenda, an agenda where, just as Dylan just said, it's not a call to action. Even the thing in Washington that Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert did, the live event, it was like a day in the... Mm-hmm. Um, the March for Common Sense. The March for Common Sense had no... It was know. a party. It had no concrete action. And I think Jon Stewart certainly seems to be more cognizant of that than many others. But he's not Al Franken. He didn't run for office, right? He's not... Not yet. Not yet, yes. I don't necessarily want to get off on an analysis of late-night talk shows. <laughs> One characteristic of something like The Daily Show was that it was a criticism of media. So there was an argument being played out on what media should look like and what its role was. And if there's one thing that most characterized, I think, Stewart's version of it was just demanding some kind of standard of consistency and self-reflective honesty that would amount to being a standard for news, right? As opposed to, you know, his regular criticism, particularly of Fox, was that it didn't have a standard for newsworthiness. It had a standard of being basically blatantly partisan and merely self-promoting. That might be the main content of his criticism. I don't know that that falls in the bubble exactly of what Rorty's talking about. And maybe that just means that we need to understand a little bit more about what that is. Rorty's criticism, both in his account in the second essay and his history of the two parts of the left, the reformist left and the cultural left, and then his more explicit discussion of the cultural left, is really a charge of self-satisfied spectatorship focused on maintaining one's own intellectual purity rather than trying to actually engage in a project of making the world align more with your political objectives. And that's sort of one way of saying the main criticism. We did our episode on Adorno, so people are familiar with at least one example of, if they've listened to the show, a cultural critique of the sort that Rorty is objecting to. Now, you know, maybe they were the sort of the, the grandfather's I mean, that's the kind of neo-Marxism that Rorty thinks is the problem. America sucks, you know, right after he gets off the boat from Germany. And it's not his culture shock. It's just that America sucks, including Hitchcock and jazz. The point of the Adorno, and you could say the same about if you're going to apply this to The Daily Show, is that they're criticizing other media as being the production of a capitalist machine that's meant to kind of distract us and lull us and keep us from threatening the powers that be. And yet, so Rorty's critique is that these (laughs) messages of critique, these engaging, especially if it's something like The Daily Show that you're watching, this becomes like, oh, that's my political activities. I read Salon. I watch The Daily Show. Whatever the thing is, that these become, even though they're critiques themselves, these actually suffer from the same thing that they're supposed to be critiques of insofar as they are media and they are lulling you into feeling like you're active when you're not actually being active. 
I didn't get that part of Rorty's criticism, that lulling aspect that somehow that leftist Marxist intellectual criticism is a lulling into pseudo-political activity. I thought that there was no lulling involved. It was a positive disengagement where you are decidedly not being politically involved. You're just throwing stones and you are self-consciously not being politically involved because the system is corrupt and irredeemable and impossible to fix. And therefore, only a grassroots revolution from the proletariat will result in a authentic, proper, and pure new government. That's a different thing. That's not being lulled. That's, like I said, positively active spectatorship. And that's what I thought his charge was, at least. I'm hoping that segment of our listenership that was way into Occupy or fancies themselves neo-Marxists will post on our blog or our Facebook page and defend themselves. I don't think we have to. Because I feel like we are not representing that viewpoint I don't think we have to worry about it. I think you're representing that viewpoint to some extent, aren't you? I did go out with the family for one Saturday afternoon when there was protests in Madison, which again were for about specific laws that were being contemplated. And it was just the fact that we've been gerrymandering and other bullshit has made it so that we did not have the power to prevent the unified Republican government from doing something, effectively killing off the teachers unions. So it was for a particular purpose, but you could say, yeah, that's kind of ineffectual. And I was not very sympathetic. Like I was not going to be somebody that was going to be there day after day after day because I honestly just didn't see the point. I didn't see how that was going to accomplish anything. And so, no, I seriously don't really understand that point of view. Which point of view? The protester point of view, which again, I'm claiming that the active protester person is probably the same person in this day and age who might fancy him or herself a neo-Marxist or be at least playing around with these bell hooksian cultural critiques. So I don't think that the cultural critique and the political action are necessarily come apart in the way Rorty says. The third essay, which we should get more into, he's actually saying yeah. a lot more there and saying how they come apart. But just to go your the whole thing with protests, it's interesting. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement that protests like that are necessarily ineffectual. I think, you know, sometimes it's important that the rest of American society know how angry some other segment of American society is. That's valuable in and of itself. Like I said, if it amounts to an FU or if it gets into that kind of quasi-religious ascription of sinfulness and demands abjection from its demands that its enemies object themselves, then you get into a certain sort of problem. Can I just interject then about, you know, what does that mean for the protesting that's going to happen here as Trump is inaugurated. Like, yes, that is ineffectual. We're ultimately saying this person, there's nothing Trump can do to correct the fact that he's unqualified for the office, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I... That specifically is a bad idea. It's a bad idea because, especially given all the time spent saying that Trump was undermining democracy for not accepting the results of the election, saying he wouldn't accept it, and just the whole tone of non-acceptance looks hypocritical. So it's bad, strategically bad. And there is, of course, nothing you could do about it. You should start working on policies right now. You should start working on resistance within Congress or real forms of resistance that will actually prevent him from implementing terrible things. So I think that kind of protest is more of a vanity protest. It's more of a, you know, I'm on the right side, look at me kind of protest. And I was going to give you an example. I went to some of those, the anti-war protests in 2002 to 2003 before the Iraq war. And I felt extremely uncomfortable 
because the simplistic slogans slapped on the signs, some of them were sort of implying the purity of our side. Others were calling the other side Hitler and fascists and evil. And there's a certain naivete, I thought. I mean, it just, it made me really uncomfortable, the whole environment. I think it's, if you've gone to a protest and you've been similarly uncomfortable, then you know exactly what Rorty is talking about, I think. But you know what, where else you see that oversimplification in an uncomfortable way is, well, religion. Exactly. And whether it's actual religion or the kind of pseudo-religion civic religion that he is recommending here. That's why I'm uncomfortable with that. And why maybe I am the kind of person like Seth, who's feels more comfortable just sitting back and critiquing than being part of a mass movement. Because I feel like anything once it's made into a mass movement is made over simplistic is made stupid is made <laughs> something that I don't necessarily want to be a part of. <laughs> so for Rorty, the problem with religion is not Obviously, it's not awe, and I don't think, like Nietzsche, right, a casual critic of religion thinks we have to get rid of awe. The sophisticated critic, like Nietzsche, understands that that's impossible, that we can't be actually be nihilists. We can't actually live that way. So for Rorty, the problem with religion is just that it fosters this absolutist authoritarian frame of mind, which I saw some of at the anti-war protest, and also this description of purity to oneself and evil to others. And I think the proper state of mind is to be in a constant state of doubt and agnosticism about whether you're on the right side. You should be constantly, you know, in the same way that your own country should be an ongoing project, you yourself and your political view should be an ongoing project. And lapsing into settling on some absolute set of values about which you have no doubts whatsoever. When I say this, I'm serious. We tend to look at the other side as evil and we're good and we have the right opinions and they have the bad ones and they feel exactly the same way. And we have absolutely no external from on high epistemological criterion to say who's right. That should be an object of curiosity and fascination for us, that predicament. That should define our politics. That's sort of the open-minded, and you know, he talks about knowingness at some point in one of these essays. The opposite of that is the open-mindedness and agnosticism, which I think he's advocating. The kind of national pride that I see Rorty talking about is perfectly in line with this, where in its future-orientedness, you are looking at a country that is going to find its way to making the right decision, to be in the right sort of place to live in. That's what the project is about. And that's not authoritarian. It's sort of like believing that your family is going to be good and not abandoning it, right? It's also like Mark talked of irony, and I think all of this is perfectly consistent with Nietzschean irony, which is consistent with passion. It's right, it's gay science. Mm -hmm. And Rorty obviously wrote a book with irony in the title that hopefully we'll get to at some point. But the idea is that even if your larger framework is skeptical or maybe it's relativist or... It's ironic. It's the, has some sort of level of detachment or the one I'm advocating has that sort of the detachment involved with agnosticism. That doesn't mean you can't be passionate. And those two things can actually work together in interesting, productive ways. They have an interesting dialectic. So I can be an extraordinarily opinionated person as I am and yet strongly advocate the idea that we all ought to constantly have it in our heads that maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're the ones on the bad side politically. That should be constantly shadow us. But it doesn't prevent us from passionate action. It just, well, I mean, I think in some ways, ideally it's meant to prevent destructiveness. I think it does. So in some ways it does lead to inaction and the kind of passionate action that you're 
anyway, I don't know. I'm like digging myself into it. I mean, too, I'm really. I feel like what you're describing, yeah, there's a reason that Nietzsche eschewed the political, that it was just kind of too big and scary and he didn't want to deal with it. That virtue, properly understood, is like walking the razor's edge. So I think one could make a good case that the skepticism that you're talking about is a form of ironic detachment, but it's difficult to balance. Like, how do you be properly ironic, but yet can still be passionate, can still find meaning in things? And this is, we talked in the De Beauvoir episode, like, it's this whole, all these pitfalls you could fall into in, in attaining the existential, her existential ideal. And so I'm all for that kind of thing and could potentially read into Rorty, like, well, here's how you as an individual should engage with political life, that you should, don't dull your critical faculties, but you could still draw on your passion, don't get sucked up in the the errors of ancient religion and anything else platonic, but yet retain that part of your nature that was, you know, retain what was good in that. But between as an individual attaining those excellences, those carefully balanced excellences in any kind of social project at all is a huge, like, how do you mass produce? So I feel like John Oliver or John Stewart really has a good balance of these things. But does that mean that I think that all the 18 year olds who watch the show have achieved that balance? No, probably they're making some elementary mistake of the kind West that you're talking about and being, you know, overly serious in some way or being nihilistic in some way. What's ironic about this reading for me is I think it's great advice for an individual, but he's not talking to the individual. He's trying to actually talk as persuasively to the mass of leftists to actually achieve something. And I, I, I can't help but feel it's a difficult task. It is. I mean, it's a whole other conversation about persuadability and whether we just despair of yes. reasoning with people. And- I have faith that the partially examined life will usher in a new wave of enlightenment in the universe, the masses will eventually come over. It will not just be a very niche thing. Well, I was hoping, yeah, we'd have a full-blown cult by now. But uh. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that we have to make sure we throw people in jail who are fully examined. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Thou shalt not be full. fully examined. So quit it, Seth. Stop examining yourself. <laughs> There's a th- a thousand things that have nothing to do with Rorty that he's just dug up. I mean, this feels like I'm in therapy more than... Do you need to lie down, Seth? <laughs> I'm, I am lying down on the floor of my <laughs> my office. That's awesome. Your hands pressed to your temples. <laughs> just took my glasses off, which means I can't see anything. Can you send a picture out of yourself with the mic on the floor? No, you, should tweet it, you, <laughs> you should tweet a picture of this. <laughs> That can be the the image for this particular episode. Just me, glasses off, <laughs> clearly defeated by life, <laughs> incapable of functioning. Wes, the thing that's tragic for me about all of this is that I've been going around championing that point of view and trying to be the change in the world, you know. Let's listen. Let's be patient. I mean, I'm the one, right? I'm the generous reader of the text. I'm the one who's always... Let's try to figure out what's going on. And when I engage with people, I try to be compassionate and all that. And 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 you do a great job of all those things. Yes. But I've hit the wall. I have no more patience left. That's the problem is that I think I see this and I'm creating an analog to my own experience. But the Rorty agenda in this book is 
we want to be passionate about, we have to be hopeful. So we didn't use the word hope, we used the word passionate earlier on, but it's, you know, he says, the right has always been the status quo, or conservative means status quo, which means you aren't looking to the future, you're looking to the past. And there's no such thing as hope relative to the past. The left has been, or the progressives have been looking to the future, they want change, because they think things can be better. And that, by definition, makes them the party of hope. So you have to have this essence of hope. You have to have a certain amount of passion and religious zeal, but without appeal to your religious zeal has to be secularized. And then there's this discursive element, and Rorty's famous for this, not just here, but in talking about philosophy, that you have to be able to enter into a conversation and be willing to be wrong. But the conversation itself requires participants who are coming in with that same attitude. And that's the part where, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to humanize your opponent, you know, humanize the person on the other side of the aisle and come in. But I'm feeling like it's like being evil, evil scumbags. (laughs) Well, no, it's like being in the relationship where, or you tell your kids or you're, you know, you're trying to be the bigger person. Like, okay, this person is being aggressive and irrational and selfish, but you know what? That's all coming from a place of fear. So I just have to be compassionate and I have to understand that. And I got to tell you, I don't understand the Dalai Lama. Like I've hit the wall in having the patience to be understanding and being the one who has to step aside and be the bigger person and be that one that is called for in this case. And the other key aspect of it from Rorty's perspective is, you know, he tells these stories of the old left There's a whole thing here in in his book about Vietnam War and how the Marxists took over where, you know, you couldn't be left and be anti-communist. But this sense of political engagement on the street political activism, he's definitely seeing this from his perspective. But I don't know that I've ever been that person. I've always been sympathetic and supportive in a variety of different ways, but never politically active. And I don't know how to do that now. So what I'm trying to figure out now is, okay, I accept the diagnosis. Rorty has called me out. I'm a tower liberal and an ineffective, ineffectual intellectual. Okay, so how does one become politically active? When I have right now in front of me, no joke on my screen, a spreadsheet that I'm starting of all the organizations that I get emails from, that just basically try to scare the shit out of me for $3 a pop. And I'm like, okay, I need to actually go do research and figure out which ones of these actually are doing things and can give me a prescription for action as opposed to just telling me, like, oppose Jeff Sessions for attorney general. Like, what does that mean? Tell your congressperson to to reject that nomination. Like, is that the call to action? Is that really the level at which we should be engaged? You need to learn from Lucy Lawless, and you need to go out on that. Get out on the boat. Shell tanker. Yes, get arrested. She's very brave and committed. On the other hand, according to Rorty, according to Whitman, Hegel is humanity's chiefest teacher. <laughs> so maybe you should let Hegel tell you what to do. And return to... WWHD. <laughs> <laughs> what would Hegel I think do? You just, 
<laughs> that I, I have a I have a punchline of this. What would Hegel do? Everything. <laughs> awesome. So, I guess I'm looking for prescriptions at this point. Prescriptions for action, that is. And I think the diagnosis, and Wes, I saw your Facebook post that you said everybody should read this. I was actually going to do the same thing and encourage everybody I know to read this book as well. You know, I feel like what you guys are seeing is kind of the personal unraveling of somebody over the last couple of episodes as with this book being the catalyst. But yeah, no more. I don't have any more to say on that. Is it that your Jewish character makes you too liable to focus on the guilt aspect, on the sin aspect, and so you're beating yourself up over this in a way that, that Rorty and Nietzsche would not approve of? Well, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't know that it's Jewish. I think it probably has just to do more with my mom. I mean, <laughs> maybe I can spend some time with Wes on this, but... I feel guilty about different things, but anyway, go ahead. But you, you know, you get it. I think the key point is I'm aware enough to recognize that I'm in the bubble and I'm stuck. And then my sense of despair gets compounded because I don't have any sense about how to respond to that other than to just disconnect. I mean, I literally can't turn on Facebook or Twitter or anything without just the, the triggers getting But I'm trigger sensitive now. Yeah, I think one thing we sort of have to accept, and maybe that's why I'm calmer about this, is a certain degree of political helplessness, which sounds like an odd thing to say in the context of this book. But anything political really is a cooperative effort and not an individual effort. To have hope, I mean, Rorty points this out himself. I think he's quoting Dewey at one point where, you know, so the price of temporality is contingency, is what he says. And the fact that there's the possibility of a wonderful future also means there's a possibility of a terrible future. And we can't control that. We can be creators of the poem. We can participate in that. But I think we have to detach ourselves to some extent from having this sense that we can control the result, right? Which is the sort of Marxist perspective or, well, maybe not the Marxist, but it's the perspective that, you know, if we do everything right, we can be scientifically assured of the positive outcome, let's say, or that maybe it's historically inevitable. It's not historically inevitable. I don't know what I'm saying. So there's some degree of resignation. You know, it's like you throw yourself into the process. And then what does the process mean? I mean, for me, it does not mean anymore going to protests or being politically active in that sense. Even though I am profoundly interested in politics, I'm more interested in ideas and discourse, the state of political discourse is really my obsession. And if I thought I could do anything good, it would be to write a book which would be conciliatory toward both sides and help each side understand the other. But but it, only the people in your bubble would read it. And, and so. Right. Well, probably everyone would hate it. That's the problem with trying to be a peacemaker is everyone <laughs> hates you. <laughs> so what is required of us? If we're talking about Dewey's, the sense in which it's this shared, our nation is a poem and we ideally we're optimistic about it. And we're in another essay, he talks about the sense of being involved, not in a movement, but in a series of campaigns, real projects with real outcomes. And then the question is, well, what campaigns are required of us to be citizens? What counts as being politically active or, or not, or just being resigned? I mean, under many definitions, I mean, I voted for Obama, for instance, and gave him a lot of money and went to his inauguration, but 
at this point, I don't see political engagement as requiring direct. I mean, I, I want some people to be engaged in these very specific campaigns to change laws, to change policies. That's a job. I don't want to do it. But I want other people to be involved there. And there's things that I think that are constructive that I could do that have implications politically. You know, if I became a therapist, for instance, or if I wrote a book about politics, those things can function constructively in the political realm. So I don't know if any of this is helpful, Seth, but this is. Uh, well, it sounds like you want to be part of the movement, but not the campaign. I know. That's what I'm saying. It does sound like that. <laughs> Mm. Should we just say yeah. what, what Rorty says about the difference between those two yeah. things? He says they're both necessary, but he contrasts them. So if you're in a part of a movement, then you're very romantic about it. You know, you could think of the Marxist thing as a quintessential version of it. You know, just looking at this is this is the inevitable movement of history or the you know the riding the wave. And he talks about one publication in particular where. Again, this is in the context of people in the later in the century in the left kind of criticizing the people earlier in the century or just telling different stories about the history of the left. And so you could tell a story that like, wow, in, you know, 1910 to 1930, there were really so much going on. It was revolutionary. It was a big movement. And now people, their concerns are so small. They just want to, you know, have this particular law passed, you know, so he's talking about some particular literary journal in this, in this context. And he actually is on the favor of the more mature. No, actually engaging in the specific campaigns, like that's what you need to do to get something done. It's not that he's against movements completely, but he, he wants to make sure that we're not blinded by these narratives of history that again, we sort of see them as inevitable or see them as greater. Like, no, narratives are just kind of stories we tell each other to convince each other of stuff. You really shouldn't take them that seriously in terms of uh, thinking this is the right narrative. This is the correct one. And when you think of things in terms of movements and you ask like, who is the really important philosopher? You know, what is their place in the movement? Like you're, that's playing on, a, I don't want to say an illusion of history because he says, really, there's no sort of objective <laughs> takes on history to contrast the mythological takes, these alleged illusions. But still, like, yeah. Well, he calls them stories. The individual specific actions. It doesn't make sense to call them not just the stories either from his standpoint. Yeah. Right. Yep. So yeah, get involved. It sounds like Seth, you're doing exactly the right thing that you're trying to get involved with particular campaigns and actually researching them and figuring out what to do and not just be like, I'm part of the movement. That's again, you know, that telling yourself you're part of the movement is exactly, maybe it's not lulling (laughs) Dylan, but it's not doing what Rorty wants you to do. Yeah. Well, I think, one of the other things is, too, that a prerequisite for getting to that place where you can engage in discourse with people and take a practical and, and you know, try and see and, and not absolutist approach towards a shared future together is being able to get access to information. And that's certainly been one of the challenges lately is, okay, if we recognize that we're caught in a narrative loop here that need to escape from, how can I identify information sources and so forth that are not part of some other narrative, some other bubble? How do I do that? And that's part of this research project as well. It's trying to figure out, you know, what are the organizations that are acting and what are they doing as opposed to the fine print where half of the people who are asking you for donations for money are not affiliated with any campaigns and not really sure you don't really know what exactly they're doing with your money or whatever, but also where can you get good information about 
what people are actually doing and how can you bypass that media loop? Well, if people give us money, it will not go to specific campaigns, but it goes to assuage our guilt mm. in continuing to put time into this podcast that could otherwise be going to uh, job-related activities. Does that help? <laughs> well, I like to think that what we're doing is being a model for the kind of discourse that that is possible. But I guess unless we have some people who don't share our political opinion on well, I think part of this movements and campaigns essay, there's something to be said merely for being creative and apolitical. I mean, you could be political part-time and creative the other time, but, but some of this essay is sort of about the attempt to sort of have this very strong, so with early Irving Howe, the desire yep. to sort of have the strong integration between political activism and art and philosophy, let's say. And let's see. So later on, he quote unquote felt he was able to dispense with the membership of the movement and throw himself into campaigns. So the magazine, when he was editing dissent as opposed to the partisan review, he was, you know, the dissent was focused on much more practical ways to fix political problems, but he remained a critic. And later on, let's see, in a margin of hope, Howe wrote that by the time he was 30, he knew what he wanted to write, that he wanted to write literary criticism like that which Edmund Wilson and George Orwell wrote. I don't know if you guys have read any of Orwell's literary criticism, but it's amazing. Like Wilson and Orwell, he wrote as he pleased about what he pleased without asking which larger goals he served or how his work tied in with the spirit of the age. Yeah, so at the bottom of 121, I suggest that the analog of a sociopolitical campaign, such as that on behalf of the eight-hour workday, or equal pay for equal work, is the career of an individual poet, novelist, dancer, critic, or painter. Such a career, like such a campaign, is finite and mortal, and can be seen to have succeeded or failed, or more frequently, to have succeeded to a certain degree, while still failing short of its initial aims. Careers like campaigns may borrow impetus and enthusiasm from or may define themselves by opposition to contemporary careers and campaigns. That is why they are artistic as well as social political alliances and struggles. The creative artist, in a wide sense that includes critics, scientists, and scholars, provides the paradigm case of a career whose conclusion leaves the world a bit different from what it used to be. If there is a connection between artistic freedom and creativity and the spirit of democracy, it is that the former provide examples of the kind of courageous self-transformation of which we hope democratic societies will become increasingly capable. Transformation which is conscious and willed rather than semi-consciously endured. So even though he's using that as an analogy, all of those pieces sort of added up to me to the suggestion that you there's something politically important just to a campaign which actually just amounts to an artistic project, something creative. So maybe we don't have to ask ourselves how we are going to <laughs> resist Donald Trump. It, it's unclear to me how this works for Rudy. But again, what is our obligation as citizens? Could I devote my life to poetry and never look at the newspaper? Is that irresponsible? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I like a little bit about the analogy in that in either case, we don't want to be overwhelmed by subservient to perceived larger historical forces 
an external narrative that is then kind of bossing us around. It's much better to just be yourself and have your own career that sets its own standard in, you know, a very Nietzschean sense. You don't have to have a master plan of what you want to get done politically. Just like find something that will produce some good. I want to have a park built in my town or whatever the, the thing is. I want to, I want to get rid of this particular injustice, which is why I think even if the Black Lives Matter thing is not necessarily addressing all that you would want in terms of the, you know, it's specifically talking about police brutality on that at least could be addressed. You know, there are specific political things, practices of putting in the video cameras and, and better training for officers and just admission, much like the Catholic Church has had to deal with its history of hiding you know, covering up for wrongdoers than the, you know, the solidarity of the police forces, uh, you know, something that similarly needs to come to light and be acknowledged and be addressed. So is that a movement? Like, I think that's a particular campaign. Anyway, so I like it from that perspective. I don't necessarily like the picture of someone's career as succeeding or failing in the way he's talking about. It sounds like he's saying it succeeds or fails to the degree that it is socially effective. I think you're reading too much into it, Mark. I think that it's succeeding or failing with respect to its own aims. Right. All right. But Mark, what you said with regard to love or doing what you love, you know, writing, trying to write like Orwell, for instance, without worrying about any of the larger political aims. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of what he said earlier about Whitman looking at things through the lens of love. Let's see. Page 25, there's an obvious difference in emphasis between Dewey and Whitman. The difference between talking mostly about love and talking mostly about citizenship. Whitman's image of democracy was of lovers embracing. And then he goes on. I I think what I'm trying to get at here is just the larger sense in which if everyone were doing what they loved, I think there would be something constructive about that. And that could ultimately amount to something politically constructive as well. Unless what you love is serial killing. And then... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then there's a problem. So love in some, you know, in more deeper and more restrictive sense. Than... Yeah. I think there's an implication that even if you're talking about, should I just be a poet that, well, if you're really, if you have love in your heart as you are doing it, what that means is that you're engaging the world in a certain way. Maybe it's only the world of poetry. Maybe it's a commenting on the world around you and you don't know anything about the history of poetry. But in either case, you're maybe not precisely writing to influence an audience. Maybe it doesn't feel that way. But if you're writing to reflect what you see as truth and say something important, well, if it's something I can detect, then you can detect it too. You know, there's potential social implications there. I think he might see something suspicious. This is, of course, reading into it in in the kind of interpretation of doing something you love as as something that ends up being purely selfish and inner inner looking that would not have the requisite love in it. Yeah, you're probably right about that. But I think there is something to be said for just doing what you love as in you could just love poems and poetry and nothing beyond that. No higher truth, not even any higher political truth, and it's still possible that many such acts that something would supervene on that, let's say, that is political, that reflects our political ideals. Well, you are positing something to be beauty. You are positing something to be truth. You are creating in Nietzschean sense. So I don't know if it's essentially a political act, but it's essentially one of the kind of things that 
life is supposed to achieve, if anything. Well, you know, earlier on he says that, so one of the people he quotes, the point of society is to socially construct people, you know, who are, can flourish, let's say. He doesn't put it that way. He talks about yes. diversity and all this, but any sort of creative act you're engaging in is social construction. And so you could argue it's inherently political. And I mean, even if it's just about love of poems and has nothing to do with politics, insofar as it socially constructs other subjects in the society, it's inherently political. Yeah. At one point, he summarizes what the objectives of, I think he would say, of American democracy are, but particularly of, of the left, would be a reduction of sadism and selfishness. And that, even though he does not use this word in the book, it's directly in line with the notion of creating the conditions of flourishing for as many people as possible. Not to make them better, not to make them the most people happy as possible, but to make the conditions for as much flourishing as possible. It's harder to be a sadist if you're discharging through creativity. Yeah. Part of the desire to humiliate people and to be sadistic in that sense, that's, you know, I think part of that is frustration. You know, you're trying to limit other people's horizons and possibilities, their projects, their becomings, their achievings, let's say, because you feel thwarted in your own. Yeah, there's something really important about any constructive activity, the engagement in that and its relationship to the construction of individuals into the construction of the state, the nation state. So we should, uh, before we close out here, make sure that there are no especially juicy quotes or particular points from the text that people had underlined several times that we've not yet hit here that it would be sad for the listeners if they did not get it. Well, there's so many, but... Uh... I had so many casual swipes in this uh, third lecture on the futility. Like, I don't want to hear... Is Baudrillard saying that life is just a capitalist dream? Is that helpful? No. Is Foucault saying that power, you know, has just changed forms, that no chains have been loosed over the last 200 years? They've just become more comfortable. Is that helpful? No. Uh, Lacan saying that human desire is fundamentally unfulfillable and calls him the uh, successor to Poe and later brings up Stephen King directly as painting this gothic view of the U.S. like as if it's controlled by these forces that were just helpless under their sway, these sinister I thought forces. That was really, uh, I mean. Yeah, but it's all very casual. I think it's fine that we have not, in this text, you know, unlike Sellers, like gone through closely line by line looking for arguments because it's pretty broad brush He's doing what he says argument about history, about political future is. He's just drawing a particular narrative. He's picking and choosing among his details, pointing at particular things of positive or negative inspiration that he wants to urge us to go toward or against. So he doesn't have to be all that serious about it. And so the whole book can be not 500 pages. It could be an essay. Yeah. I see what you're saying, Mark, but I think his analysis is. I don't know. It's not detailed in the sense of always going through like line by line of something, but a lot of this is cultural phenomenology or 
ostension of a certain kind. He's pointing to something, and if you don't see that, that's fair enough. But in an essay like this, it's not an academic thesis where he's going to prove it to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, like his analysis of Foucault, like the way he characterizes it, which one thing I like that he does is that in many cases, he sees a lot of virtue, even in the people that he's criticizing. But he ha- does have a strong criticism for the way in which certain things are, are taken. As much as he you know, sounds existentialist like, like Sartre does, he clearly finds it almost unforgivable that Sartre would in any way have been an apologist for Stalin. Surely it's forgivable. <laughs> no. Everything is forgivable, right? Isn't that one of his other points? Is that you can't dismiss people because of their lack of purity. <laughs> well, no, you can hold that to be the same thing. I mean, he endorses Baldwin's lack of forgiveness near the beginning. It's not forgiveness that's the issue. It's exactly right. The act of Sartre's encouragement of not only ignoring the crimes of Stalin, but in fact actively subverting the investigation of such crimes, he would consider unforgivable at the highest degree. So the act is unforgivable. That doesn't mean that the figure should be ignored or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, in 94, when he's talking about Foucauldian power, he says in the Foucauldian usage, the term power denotes an agency which has left an indelible stain on every word in our language, on every institution in our society. It is always there and cannot be spotted coming or going. One might spot a corporate bagman arriving at a congressman's office and perhaps block his entrance, but one cannot block off power in the Foucauldian sense. Power is as much inside one as outside one. It is nearer than hands and feet. I think that's exactly right. (laughs) You know, and even if he's agreeing that there's something right about Foucault's analysis of power, it's the extrapolation of that into a spectatorship society where you throw up your hands and say, well, it's all about power, and you become fundamentally a spectator because of that. That's what he's criticizing. Well, I forgot Levinas, since we just covered him recently, that talking about we're infinitely responsible for the other, like that sounds like a recipe for political defeatism. Like I, and this is going back to our Peter Singer episode. Like if I have that much responsibility, I, I can't take any of it. Forget it. Just. Yeah. Rory links up the obsession with the infinite, with original sin, with authoritarian absolutism. And those are all part of the problem from his perspective. Well, all right. Anything else jumping out? I think you should just read the book. Yes. Yeah, I think this is a reasonable length. And yeah, everybody should just order this damn thing. They should put that blurb on the back of the jacket. A reasonable length, exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) Not too difficult. (laughs) It was very breezy. This is a brilliant book that, this is like Wes Crack, Wes Nip. Obviously, you guys know from my politics, this is right up my alley. And it just, to see it so... Beautifully, intelligently expressed, and profoundly pleasurable to read, I thought. I mean, he's such a great writer. And the level of erudition and the way he brings that into his writing without making it academic or dry, I found this exciting to read. I mean, there's lots of stuff I hadn't thought of. So there's a lot to learn about in this book, I think, about 
the American project, the American political landscape. Now, I posted that thing on Facebook because I really do think everyone should read this. I think it would be helpful politically. I mean, this is the kind of thing where this kind of book is a political act. It is a constructive political act. And if more people read something like this, I think it would improve our political discourse and it would help us get things done. Although he is hardly nice to, where's the, the quote about conservative intellectuals? The point isn't exactly about being nice. It's about being persuasive. And those two things aren't exactly the same. I think respect is in order, but you can come at people strongly, I think. People don't demand that you but, be nice, but they demand that you not humiliate them and be, and maybe he did go too far. I don't know. Well, yeah, he talks about George Will and similar conservative culture critics as, as know-nothings here on page 182. It is doubtful whether the current critics of the universities who are called conservative intellectuals deserve this description. For intellectuals are supposed to be aware of and to speak to issues of social justice. But even the most learned and thoughtful of current conservatives ridicule those who raise such issues. They themselves have nothing to say about whether children in the ghettos can be saved without raising suburbanites' taxes or about how people who earn the minimum wage can pay for adequate housing. They seem to regard discussion of such topics as in poor taste. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. He's not condemning the conservative frame of mind. He's just talking about the political situation at that time and the fact that the leading conservative intellectuals sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Same if we're saying the main... One of the main intellectual trends behind the conservatism that elected Trump was being against so-called political correctness. That's exactly what the context of this passage was talking about. Yes, but I think, first of all, he's trying to throw an enormous bone to all the people he's about to savage in the second part of that essay. (laughs) And it's true. You know, If you define political correctness in a certain way as just wanting people to be nice and respectful to each other, that's entirely right. I think a lot of people have something different in mind when they talk about political correctness. And I think they have a point. You know, you could call it something else if you want. And I think he would agree if you pointed to those phenomena, the second part of his essay suggests he would agree that that goes too far. So I don't know. It's a question, you know, is it helpful <laughs> to label your enemies in the way that he's labeled them? I mean, I think it's much different to sort of talk about intellectuals, you know, conservative intellectuals, and it is to talk about baskets of deplorables, for instance, and those sorts of generalizations, which sort of throw a wrench in any attempt to persuade a persuadable portions of an electorate, for instance. Uh, especially when you come up with a pithy name for an entire non-specific group of people. Right? <laughs> yes. That they can then, yeah, claim. It's that combination of pithiness and non-specificity. It's like a very specific metaphor with a very non-specific analog. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like a rhetorical bazooka of destruction, as opposed to Trump's fetish of coming up with obnoxious names for his rivals is rhetorically brilliant because it's always targeted to a specific person. And yes, it's bullying. Yes, it's making fun of them, right? But it doesn't, politically, it doesn't alienate an entire electric, except for people who don't like bullying, which is fine, but it doesn't insult them directly. I feel pretty clearly labeled 
as a member of a group of users. <laughs> I, I, I think that's the fact that we're like on a philosophy podcast. Like, what a bunch of like. Yeah, you're right. On. Even if he did not pick us out so far, maybe if we tweeted him, he'll loser call us. Yeah, right. Business, and we didn't start with a million dollars or however much he was given. <laughs> that's <it>. true. <laughs> that's true. Well, I'm sorry to say that we had one person on Twitter say, all your anti-Trump stuff, and this is just referring to like our before the election stuff that had been up at that point. All of her anti-Trump stuff? All all the the anti-Trump comments, the the anti-Trump foolishness that has crept into your your podcast means I'm not going to listen to you anymore. You failed. That guy had like five followers. Actually, I looked up, he had a, a YouTube channel of political philosophy, and it was all like explaining Pizzagate and stuff, so... I guess the Pizzagate demographic is, hey, they're just being uh, skeptical. They're zetetic skeptics about what the man is telling them. That's all conspiracy theory is. It's being a skeptic. Come on. Like 10,000 words in conspiracy theories (laughs) and skepticism. Well, I think there's been a conspiracy to keep Seth silent. (laughs) No. No conspiracy. It's gravity and liquor. It's so many things. Yeah, I think he's laying on the floor with a gimlet on his chest and his microphone in his mouth and his headphones on his head in his underwear. That's what's going on. Yeah. So (laughs) his microphone is in his underwear. (laughs) Well, you know, I feel like I owe the fans of Partially Examined Life an apology for, for my inability to... I mean, I truly do feel like we are doing something special and important. And, you know, I feel like for maybe, I don't know, seven years. How long have we been doing this? Seven years now? Something like that. Seven and a half. Yeah. I have put aside many things and subordinated my own opinions and identity to the text in the service, you know, of other people. And, one of the themes that we started last year, you know, 2016 was in many respects for us kind of our first steps into what I'll call modern political and social philosophy. Uh, you know, we finally got around to talking about some members of the Frankfurt School and, you know, we got into a lot more existentialism and I was very excited about that because I felt like this was an area that I needed to explore and that I, it was something that I sort of neglected and what have you. And, you know, I, I move more slowly than other people and it's going to take me a while, but my head is turning. And what I fear most is that right now I've got the very counter revolutionary or, or reactionary approach where now I'm asking myself what the value of all of our philosophizing is and should I just not be out on the streets, you know, marching and acting and creating as opposed to doing what we do. I'm having a crisis of faith. And this Rorty book was a really great piece of therapy. And even though we haven't really talked through a lot of his key arguments or whatever, I echo Wes's endorsement. (laughs) I just, I guess I'll have to ask everybody to just put up with me for a little while. (laughs) And who knows, maybe if we read Boethius soon, all will become clear. And if we don't raise five dollars from each and every listener out there, Seth's spirit will not revive. Please. (laughs) 
support your po- local podcast. Well, this is a, the more appropriate way to be doing it. We'd have to, we should just title this podcast not, you know, Achieving Our Country with Richard Rorty, but... Uh, Achieving Our Seth. No, no, no. I was thinking something like, Seth will die unless you give us $3 or something like that. It's, there needs to be some kind of fear-mongering going on because that's the world we live in now. I'm all for mongering. I don't know about the fear. You like mongering? mongering? Definitely. (laughs) Yes, I like that word. (laughs) The monger. Isn't that the name of your spinoff podcast that you're going to have, Wes? The monger. That's a good one. The monger. That's a good branding. All right. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, this is a good one for people to go on our Facebook group and comment on this or go on our blog and comment on this. This is a great one. And then, uh, but next time we're going to be, we're going to be consoled by Boethius and his consolations of philosophy, not this inspiration and agitation crap. We want to be consoled and lulled. I want to, I want to have a nice nap. So, uh, let's, yeah, come back for that. Our closing song is brand new, written right after Trump was elected by Jill Sobuel, who is a charming interview on my Nakedly Examined Music episode 18. She recently spearheaded the My Song Is My Weapon campaign to create protest songs. Go look on Facebook for My Song Is My Weapon and hear my interview with her at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. This song is called Wake Up Sleepyhead. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Time to get up. It's finally raining. Let's open your window. Can you smell the jasmine? The robins are singing. Is that just a ringing in your hangover head? It was a bad news week. Everything looks rather bleak. Yeah.
to get up. It's finally raining. Open your window. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.